The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I've been considering with you a sort of wide-ranging series topically on the subject of prayer. It has taken us through various books of Scripture, and we turn today to Romans chapter 8, a wonderful favorite chapter. Maybe the part I'm considering is, I think, maybe the lesser attended or lesser noticed part of Romans 8. I'm actually going to stop reading right before the favorite verse 28 because once you read 28, you have to read to the end of the chapter and it's taking us into another subject. You might have noticed if you came in early enough to look at your bulletin and think, well, what thought was given to prepare for worship today? I simply asked that you might think about reading Psalm 88. I take it perhaps at least a few of you did that, and you might have wondered, why in the world did the pastor assign me to read this depressing psalm? It is absolutely the number one most depressing psalm because the psalmist is wallowing in misery, in suffering, in a sense of lostness. He feels God has overwhelmed him, and he cannot make contact with the Lord And uh, the phrase it ends with, at least in the NIV translation, is, and darkness is my dearest friend. Wow. That's not the way biblical psalms are supposed to end. They're supposed to resolve some kind of happily ever after, and I found the Lord and hope was revived. But do you know why I point you to Psalm 88? People would think this doesn't even belong in the Bible. There's no hope in it. But there's one thing to note about Psalm 88 for all the psalmist's misery. It's there because of one thing. He is praying. He hardly feels he can make contact with God, but he is praying. And that's the place for a person to be, to find the Lord, even when misery is most apparent. You'll see that theme as we look today. I'm reading from Psalm 8, beginning at verse 18. The theme of the psalm, or the chapter of Romans, what did I say? Romans 8, I'm reading from. And the theme is the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in giving the life of God to a Christian. But there's a special thing the Holy Spirit does at a time when Christians are dejected and hurting and foundering, hardly knowing how to touch bottom, how to find the Lord. Listen as I read Romans 8, beginning at 18 through 27. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. May God bless this, his holy word. My wife will testify to you that I could be classified as a groaner I tend to groan and sigh a lot. And when she's around me, she'll hear this dismal sound coming from me for no apparent reason, and she'll quickly be alarmed and say, Honey, what's wrong? And sometimes I don't know what to tell her. I might have a headache. I might be concerned about traffic behavior. I might be reacting to the latest bad news on the television. But I will tell Carol often truthfully, Honey, nothing special is wrong. That was just a general purpose, garden variety, groan. <laughs> you know, in the NFL now, they, they have this new rule that coaches are allowed to, I guess you throw a red flag when you want to question a play and have it reviewed. It seems to me that I think they're allowed three of those per game, if I've got it straight. There should be allowed three unexplained garden variety groans every day for each of us, I think. And, and I could say to my wife, dear, that was just a Romans 8.26, that's all. Well, when Christians pray, you would imagine that language is needed, words are needed. And yet our text, Romans 8.26 and 27, says there's a level of communication that goes on with our Heavenly Father on occasion that does not necessarily depend on polished speech or well formed, precise doctrine, or eloquent words. There are times, especially in our distress, when words just don't come. The entirety of Romans 8 is about the Holy Spirit, how God, by the Holy Spirit, gives us new life. Look at verse 2. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And it goes on to tell you what the Spirit does. He cries out in us, to the Father, and we cry out, Abba, our Father, in verse 15. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and so on. Assurance comes by the Spirit. But then it goes into this passage in verses 26 and 27 that has always kind of fascinated people. As the passage begins with the words, likewise, or in the same way, the Spirit helps in our weakness. He helps us in prayer. 
In fact, prayer, we're taught by the Bible, is a robustly Trinitarian act. We pray to God the Father. Last week, I showed you, I think, how we pray through Christ, our mediator. And now we're told that even the Holy Spirit has a role in prayer. No Christian prays alone. We pray with the three-personed God on our side. We've titled this series, God-Centered Prayer. Some people seem to think prayer is just a recitation that you address into the ether of space and maybe some being picks up on it, but you'd better be fluent. You'd better use special words. I grew up in a King James Bible church, and I was always a little fascinated by some of my friends in junior high who, I guess, thought they were imitating the, the pastor, and they would pray. They'd be asked to pray in the junior high youth meeting, and they'd say, God, if thou shouldest, thou wouldest. And I never caught that. I thought I could speak to God in English, and today English, that is, not despising the King James language. But I tried to talk to God as I talked to others. And we're told here that there are times, especially when we're in distress, when it seems like we're babbling instead of praying, it seems like we're not connecting, our feelings are feelings of great loss, we don't know how to phrase things, when the Father communicates through the Spirit to understand our cries. Romans 8, 18 to 25 says, every reborn Christian is infused with the Spirit. The Spirit lives in us. He transforms us. He sponsors and calls us to that salvation we have in Christ. And, and the passage, I'm not dwelling on this much, but just to fill in the context a little bit, the passage talks about living in the midst of a creation. The word to groan is several times in here. The creation itself is groaning. Hurricanes are part of the creation, groaning, earthquakes, fires out of control. The creation is groaning. Do you doubt that? And then it says we groan sometimes in the pains of childbirth because the salvation, we have the first fruits of our salvation. The the down payment is in us, but we haven't received the whole of it, the ultimate thing, which would be the redemption of our bodies. So here's a groaning creation with people in it already saved and yet not yet fully transformed, not fully seeing the face of God as our brother Chuck Taylor is looking upon him today. And we groan. We're hoping for that that we don't have yet. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness, our incompleteness. I hope you'd be encouraged as I work through these two verses, Romans 8, 26 and 27. I think they say three things. One, they talk about words that don't come. They talk about a Spirit who helps and a Father who hears. Words that don't come. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what we ought to pray for. This has been a main premise of everything I've had to say about prayer. We seem to start out and go off in life with the idea that, well, we know what we need. We know what to pray for. Why doesn't God deliver? And I've tried to maintain to you that we don't know what to pray for and that prayer is a school 
in which we're back and forth with the Lord and saying, well, Lord, I thought you wanted this, but I'm wondering if you want this. Was I asking you for the wrong thing? Perfectly legitimate to be praying that way. Now comes an admission of weakness from a man of great strength. The Apostle Paul, who is stronger than Paul? My goodness, this man had an incredible education. It would have been a a degree from an Ivy League college and a couple earned doctorates if he was in our society. Paul had a tremendous razor-sharp mind. He could take on any debater. He could face off against kings and governors without fear. He always had the right word. And here is this man, Paul, saying, we often do not know what to pray for. If Paul admits that weakness, you'd better be willing to admit that you don't know is know what to pray for, that you're baffled before God. On the last time he appeared in his pulpit in a church of our denomination, 10th Presbyterian Church, the late Dr. Jim Boyce on May 7th, 2000, came into the pulpit that day not to preach a sermon, but it was to give an update on his health because the whole congregation knew that Jim had serious liver cancer, which claimed his life six weeks later. And as he gave a health update, which is the last thing he ever spoke to his people, you can, I think you can even find this on the 10th website if you're interested. Jim said, these are some of his words, he said, Some of you wonder how to pray for me. Should you ask God for a miracle? Miracles do happen, but they're rare by definition. He said, I wonder if it's more profitable that you would pray for the effectiveness of medical treatment. Above all, though, he said, pray for the glory of God to be revealed in me as it was supremely accomplished at the cross and resurrection. Here was a man with a Harvard degree, a Princeton Seminary master's degree, European doctorate of highest distinction. Jim had impeccable credentials and a strong mind. He was known as a preacher to preachers. But this strong man of God was admitting that it was hard to know just what to pray for in the face of a deadly disease. Right requests in prayer can involve trial and error. They almost always do, as a matter of fact. We think we know what we should ask the Father, but as we pursue it, sometimes we find out that our request is too narrow or too selfish or or not really biblical at all. And we find that prayer is about learning what the Father wants for us as it is putting in an order and waiting for a delivery. And we usually don't know what we should be asking when we begin to pray. The average Christian who comes into a situation of stress or grief or just supreme confusion in their life may think they're a rare case that prayer gets hard. Quite the opposite is true. Weakness is every Christian's problem at some level and at some time in life. And biblical giants prove this to us. The book of Job, remember that? We spent some time in Job within about a year ago. We saw a man who was a peerless man of God, hardly with any fault on his righteous life within his generation. And he wrestled in that whole book 
with anger and skepticism and depression, and he kept almost shaking. He reached a point where he almost shook his fist at heaven, even though initially he did not curse God, and he never did really curse God. But, but he was all through saying, why, God, why? And he was almost doing more talking about his inability to pray than he was praying. And then there was David. The psalmist ran the gamut of everything you could think of in his psalms. He gave us wonderful, rich praise and other times agonized cries, a real man who was a giant but didn't always know what to pray about. Jesus, the Son of God, reached that epic point in Gethsemane when it was certainly a moan or a groan when he said, Father, Let this cup be taken from me. But your will be done, not mine. When people are suffering, prayer doesn't come easy. Even just being elderly, people find memory loss and weak powers of concentration. How many times I've visited a shut-in or brought communion in my years of ministry. and I've had many people say to me, Pastor, I just can't seem to pray anymore. And I say, why don't you try just very short one-sentence prayers, knowing that their concentration can get through a sentence. It probably can't get through a paragraph too easily. But they can just say something simple to the Lord and then something simple later on. We come in places through grief, through tragedy, when we're at an end of ourselves and we're only aware of a raw, unspoken need that we hardly even know how to verbalize, but we can still, like the psalmist of Psalm 88, be found praying. Nobody said prayer was always going to be easy. Every possible distraction you can think of attacks prayers, wandering thoughts, all kinds of things, and you decide, I'm going to spend the next five minutes in prayer, I'll guarantee you, something around you will occur. The cat does something or... The TV comes on because you had it on a timer or whatever. Something happens to make prayer harder, even little foolish things. We are naturally weaklings like Paul in the school of prayer, and you are not alone. Please don't tell me. Pastor, you don't understand. I can't pray. I don't know how. You're no different than anybody else. Paul. This great intellect said we don't always know how to pray as we ought. So that's the words that don't come. But then secondly, there's better news. Because we move on to see that there's a Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who helps. Psalm 103 verse 14 says that the Lord knows us through and through. He knows our frame how we're made, how we think, how we react. He knows your frame and remembers that you are dust. He has a spiritual MRI machine to understand you. And he designed a means of help for prayer for those who are in greatest weakness because he wants to communicate with you whether you can take the initiative or not. For decades, our household has contained a spinet piano 
if we move, the piano has to move. It went all the way back to seminary days when my wife taught piano lessons. We had her childhood piano that her parents gave us as a means of income. And, uh, you know, I watched two guys, professional movers, pick it up, dump it on a dolly, and whisk it out the door a couple weeks ago. But uh, it wasn't always like that. It used to be a seminary student and a wife. How do we move this Baldwin Acrosonic Spinet piano? What was the answer? Find three male friends. I didn't want my wife to be one who would move. And I usually could find three guys. Okay, I'll help you move your piano. You found out who your friends were because it was hard to move, hard to lift. And you could crush your toes or something if you got them in the wrong place. But how many times we found those who would help? Well, piano moving is directly apropos to this text because the help that the Spirit is said to give us in prayer is that of lifting a load, coming alongside and lifting a load that you can't do by yourself. The Spirit of God comes along and shoulders the burden of prayer that you can't carry all by yourself. There's quite a curious puzzle that spins around verse 26 here. You kind of have to make an interpretive choice, and you'll find very good commentators on both sides of the issue. When we read the phrase, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that cannot be uttered, that sounds like the Holy Spirit is groaning. Well, we've already been told that we groan and the creation groans, so maybe you say, why shouldn't the Holy Spirit groan? But there are those who don't think it means that, and I tend to slide over to that side. And if you disagree with me, you disagree with some very, very good biblical experts. One is Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones writes about this passage, and he says this, quote, The Godhead does not groan. A groan is an admission of weakness, and that is inconceivable for God, the Father, Son, or Spirit. The persons of the Trinity, he said, have no cause to express sighing or moaning or groans of pain. What Lloyd-Jones and others assume this text means, or and I agree with you that the translation we've got in front of us doesn't best agree with this, is something like this. The Spirit intercedes for us when our groaning cannot be uttered. In other words, it's we that are doing the groaning, and the Spirit of God comes to us who are rendered speechless by suffering or depression or some problem. We're baffled in our griefs. We don't know what to say. And God's life-giving Spirit interprets our tongue-tied thoughts and desires into understandable thoughts to the Father. That's what many think this means. The Spirit of God, in other words, is so enmeshed in us. He lives in us. He's not outside of us. We don't have to call him up. And we had a little incident yesterday in our house, a little, I won't say who was cooking bacon that created smoke that set off the smoke detector. And we now live in a retirement community where if you set off a smoke detector, you're going to have an outside response. So someone called up and said, hey, you've got a smoke to tell. Yeah, well, that didn't really happen. Don't talk to my wife about that. But, uh, you know, we tend to think that prayer is like that, sending a, sending a signal to some outside source of help who has to 
come with, worst case scenario, a fire engine and put out the fire. But this passage is saying the Spirit of God is in you. It's so intimately engaged with you that He is your bond with God, understanding you intimately, knowing you all well as He possibly could know anyone. Here's the Spirit who helps. And so thirdly, we come to the Father who hears, as verse 27 says, He who searches our hearts, the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accord with God's will. We have folks in this church who have family, close family, in Puerto Rico. They were very disturbed and concerned for a while, a week or so ago, because they couldn't get a phone line. They couldn't communicate with a mother or another very close relative, which thankfully they now have heard from. But you're hearing about the disaster, all the communications, or at least half of them are out of whack. The cell phone towers are down, and people can't get through. All they get is static on their end of the communication. Well, there's times in our lives when we're like a Puerto Rico, and it seems like the communications are down. But this text is saying, no, the communicator is right in us. He's a cell tower that never goes dead, the Holy Spirit. And we're being told here that our communication with this Spirit sometimes rises above even the need for language. You might think of the way an infant communicates with his mother, and the mother learns what that child that can't even form words or sentences is saying. One cry means, I'm hungry. Another one means, I'm really tired. I wish I could go to sleep. Another one might be the general purpose squall that you figure it out, Mom, what, what that one means. Infants and moms communicate that way. And the Holy Spirit communicates with us, within us. John Murray was a great theologian, and he wrote on this verse to say this. I quote him, As God searches the heart of his human children in whom he caused his spirit to dwell, he finds unspoken and unutterable groanings Although they are inarticulate, they have meaning and intent that cannot escape the all-knowing eye and ear of the Father. They are intelligible to the Father because of the Spirit. Doesn't that give you a new concept of prayer? Prayer isn't just sending out the message and hoping it arrives. We ordered something online, an item for our home, and my wife checked the computer and she said, It's been shipped. The item's been shipped. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had that with prayer? You you could say, God, I need this. And then you could check and say, oh, the answer's on the way. It'll be here by Thursday. Well, prayer doesn't work that way, does it? But we have this unbreakable relationship with our Father. Prayer is not a marketing concept, I've been trying to say. It's not about putting in your order and expecting delivery exactly as you specified it. It's much about you learning what to ask God for, what God wants. And when you're best in line with His will, the Scripture says you cannot fail but receive when you're asking according to His will. It's more about who God is and how He's revealed Himself in His Word than it is how fluent you are with words 
and sentences. Somebody said once that only hypocrites are always glib in prayer. Only hypocrites are always glib in their prayer. If you cannot seem right now to find the right words to pray, I want to say to you, welcome to a very large club. And its biggest definition, it's called humanity. In its second largest definition, it's called every Christian. Effectual prayer depends altogether on the all-sufficiency of God, not on the all-sufficiency of you. It is perfected in your weakness. Sometimes you're going to find your best communion with God is when you feel speechless. God the Holy Spirit is not affected by the wide range of discouragements and crises and griefs and pain which beset and cripple us. And in fact, when we reach the end of our personal resources, that's when the Holy Spirit begins to take hold of us and make our prayer effectual. He takes up for our best interests where our sin and ignorance and difficulty and pain seem to cause nothing to happen. C.S. Lewis said once, I have a notion that what seems best on the surface at least to be our worst prayers may in God's eyes be our best. There was a woman who knew much suffering and she expressed very profound theology in a simple thing she wrote to a friend. She said, I reckon the Holy Spirit fixes all my tear-soaked, messy prayers as they go on the way up. On the way up. That's the Holy Spirit's department. People of Christ, be comforted. In a language that only the Spirit and the Father speak, your wordless cries are translated to the throne of God. May God be praised and thanked for this. Father, there's a mystery at the heart of prayer. Why should you hear us? Why should you be concerned about our often misinformed and ignorant and selfish, babyish things that we ask you? But you are. You're concerned with our weakness. You send the Spirit to come alongside and lift the piano that we can't budge. Thank you, Father, for Jesus the Son, whose blood opened the gate of heaven as our mediator, and for your Spirit, who comes alongside and helps and comforts and translates. Truly, you are to be greatly praised. In Jesus' name, amen.